Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special afternoon high-tech session. My name's Caroline Baum, and I'm delighted to be with you, and let's hope that the technology is going to be cooperative with us as we travel to Jakarta in a moment. Uh, before we go there, I would like to acknowledge the Ghana people um, as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay my respects to elders past, present, and future. We recognize and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationships with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. So thank you for being here this afternoon. While it's great to see you here, we do need to still keep ensuring that you are physically distanced. This is crucial as it's a key condition of our COVID management approved plan from South Australian Health. So before we start, if you are standing, no, I don't think anyone's standing, um, move apart and ensure you maintain social distancing. Um, at the end of this session, for obvious reasons, there will not be a book signing, but that should not stop you from rushing to the bookshop to go and buy um, The Mountain Sing, the book that we are here to talk about today. So, um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our author, Nguyen Phan Quay Mai. Um, she was born in Vietnam in 1973, and as I'm sure most of you will remember, the war in Vietnam ended in 1975. The Mountain Sing is her epic account of Vietnam's painful 20th century history, seen through the eyes of one family and told in the voice of a resourceful grandmother remembering the brutality and privation of life in the 30s and 40s, and her granddaughter, Huang, observing the aftermath of war and reunification in the 1970s. Kwe Mai uh, worked as a street vendor and rice farmer before winning a scholarship to attend university in Australia, and remarkably, this book is written in her second language. She's the author of eight books of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction published in Vietnamese, and her writing has been translated in more than 50, into more than 15 languages. She won the Hanoi Writers Association Poetry Prize in 2010. The audio recording of The Mountain Sing is currently a finalist for Best Audiobook of the Year. It's also an international bestseller, a New York Times editor's choice, and winner of the 2020 Lanan Literary Award Fellowship for its contribution to peace and reconciliation. One of the things that I really love about this book is that it's sprinkled with Vietnamese proverbs. And one of them, I think, sums up Quay Mai's own life story, intertwined with the story of the novel, and that is that good luck hides inside bad luck. Kwe uh, Mai is speaking with us today from Jakarta. Please give her a warm round of applause. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Caroline, for your amazing uh, introduction. I'm teary right now. Um, you know, I, I went to Australia to study with a few sets of clothes. I had nothing, but I wish to um, study to learn. And now I return to Australia with this book written in English, the language that you gave me. You know, when I first went to Australia in 1993, I hardly spoke any English. I couldn't understand anyone, especially the Aussie accent. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, it's just an unbelievable journey. I mean, I must say that my time in Australia taught me a lot. I went to museums, I, I learned about, you know, the history of Australian people. And, you know, I, I really admired how Australians open up to your difficult past, where you talked about difficult past with the Aboriginal people and also refugees. And I learned a lot and I kept listening. I mean, once I remember there was you know, I went to the beach and I met an Australian who fought in Vietnam. And he didn't talk to me much, but sitting there with him, you know, listening to the waves, I heard some story that was untold. And I think after coming back from Australia, I inquired further into the history of Vietnam. And and I mean, it has been a, a long journey and I'm here today. A long journey. 
A yes, long, long journey. I know. It's taken you seven years to write this book. And before we, we dive into the book, Kwemai, I want to ask you a little bit, because you are in Jakarta, about how the pandemic has been experienced by you there, because we know that Indonesia has been having a hard time. So how are things around you? It's a miracle that I, I see you having an in-person event, because in Jakarta, we are unable to have such an event, um, you know, since since the last year or so. So um, we have had very strict lockdown and, um, you know, um, I haven't seen my friends really. And, you know, things, things are difficult, but we are managing quite okay. And, and I think like, like you said, you know, good luck hides inside bad luck, you know, <laughs> with uh, now with technology, I'm able to, to, you know, talk to uh, readers everywhere around the world. And, you know, I, I couldn't imagine that it was possible before. So thank you so much. Well, I think it's, it's interesting that that proverb about good luck and bad luck can be applied to so many different things about our lives today. Perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about the Australia Awards that brought you to Australia in the first place and, and the circumstances of that. Oh, you know, in... Um, so, um, I remember one day I came, you know, uh, uh, in 1992, I lived in a dormitory in Saigon with like 12, uh, 11 other girls. So we lived in bunk bed, you know, um, and then one day I, I went to, I was, uh, my, my parents were like rice farmers in Baclio at that time. And uh, I was in Saigon and um, I had to earn my living by tutoring. And one day I came home um, from tutoring and, and, and my roommate said, the principal was just here. He said that you won a scholarship to study in Australia. And I said, what? I thought I was dreaming. I mean, and he, I had been selected out of, you know, like 40 students. Uh, out of Vietnam who won, you know, who were the top students in, in our courses, 40 of us, but we had to compete, uh, you know, um, so the scholarship would be awarded to 25 people. So, so you know, so we, we could have to compete. And so, so we take an exam and, and I, during the days that I studied for that exam, I, I don't think I ever slept, you know, <laughs> because I knew it would change my life. And, you know, Australia, I had never been out of Vietnam. And so I studied day and night and, and, and luckily I passed and I went, um, I, I studied one year first English at um, La Trobe University. And then I went on to study at Monash University. You know, when I was a child, I always wanted to be a writer but my parents didn't want me to because of the experiences with writers in Vietnam. So then my brothers, I have two eldest brothers. So they said, oh, study, have a good career, you know, uh, and earn money to help parents. So I went on to study business uh, at Monash University. And, you know, but because I always loved writing, so I focused on business communications so I could write. And when I returned to Vietnam, I work in marketing communications. Um, yeah, so the, the scholarship really changed my life. And I, I need to say that I was really lucky. I got to stay with an Australian family, Jim and Suzanne Russell, and they embraced me as a daughter into their family. And they taught me so much about Australian traditions and customs. And I learned so much English then <laughs> because, you know, I didn't understand much and, yeah, it was, um, yeah. But I mean, I was really lucky. It's extraordinary to think that this book was written in English because it's a very poetic, often very lyrical book. I'm just trying to think about what that must have been like. Is that why it took seven years? Or can you talk a little bit about the research that you did talking to veterans and how difficult it was perhaps to find people who were willing to share their wartime experiences with you? I think I researched for this book my whole life, you know, because I was born in North Vietnam and I grew up in the South of Vietnam. And I saw how how much uh, our community was divided because of the war, you know. The Vietnam War killed more than 3 million people, injured millions. And, you know, there are many refugees who, 
who fled the country. So you could say that the trauma is inherited from one generation to the next, and we have not been healed by it. You know, there, there has been very few discussions about the trauma and the loss faced by Vietnam, Vietnamese people. And when I became a writer, I started to translate Vietnamese poetry because I wanted the world to know Vietnam beyond the war. And when I started reading literature about Vietnam, I was frustrated at how, how we are, you know, how much uh, literature in English about the Vietnam and the Vietnam War still centered on the voices of, of non-Vietnamese. Mm. So I wanted to claim the space of our stories in that canon of literature, because I think uh, I, I think there are still so many untold stories in Vietnamese literature and also in English about Vietnamese history. So I was determined to write this book, and it was I think it was a crazy decision, you know, <laughs> because um, before writing this book, I I had a career in in, in in Vietnamese language. I had quite a few books published, and publishers always like. Uh, when do we have your next book? And here I, here I was, you know, abandoning everything and started something new, not having an agent, not knowing that this book could ever be published. But, you know, throughout my life, because um, when I returned from Australia, I had the opportunity to travel and work in, in the rural areas of Vietnam, work with many veterans of the war, victims of the war. And I heard their stories and because you know, the more I read, the more I talked to people, the more I knew what questions to ask and the need to listen, how to listen to people. So, you know, I think I was compelled to write this story, not, not, to, not to be famous or to make money out of it, but just to honor the memories, to honor those who, who trusted me enough to tell them their personal stories. And especially for my parents, you know, my parents are very traumatized and they rarely shared with us about their, their past histories. But once I became a writer, they started sharing with me a little and a little, you know, and I mean, you know, in, in the book, I wrote about the land reform and, and the great hunger, these events killed so many people, but it's rarely talked about. And I remember I was weeping to hear the personal accounts of my parents. And I felt that I, felt that I owe it to them to, to, to write it. And, you know, I wanted to also to, but to represent Vietnam in this book as a country rich in cultural heritage, you know, in, in literary tradition. So that's why I had no choice but to bring poetry into this book. Like a famous Vietnamese poet, poet Phong Quán said, có những phút ngã lòng tôi viện câu thơ và đứng dậy. During the moments of difficulties, I hold on to the verse of poetry to pull myself up. Beautiful. So poetry is like the pillar of the Vietnamese life. So that's why it took me so long because like I use the dictionary <laughs> so much in writing this book. And, you know, it was like, yeah, it took a long time, but you, it was. You said hmm. there, um, Quay Mai, that, um, you know, it was painful getting these stories from your parents, which I imagine they wanted to protect you from a lot of that, like parents generally with trauma often do. Um, did you find that it was easier to get women to open up to you about their experiences during the war than, than men? Or was it, was it not divided according to gender? I think it's not... Um, that's a very um, interesting question. I haven't thought about it. But I feel like the older generation of Vietnamese people have the need to talk to someone because with the development of our country we are moving on really fast mm -hmm. we become very commercialized so so i think the, the elderly or the older people become long more lonely you know and i feel the need they need to talk to someone one of my favorite things to do when i return home is to go on uh, motorbike rides you know they are like in australia you have taxi you know but in vietnam we have motorbike taxis and these are you know older men who 
you know, or younger men who stand on street corners and they can take you anywhere. And I would choose, you know, older men and, you know, I would ask them questions and they would tell me incredible things about their life, you know. And by the, by the end of the journey, I would know their life from, from childhood until then. And it's like, you know, and I think the veterans, they are really also um, have a huge need to talk to people. For example, you know, one of my friends who fought against the Americans, who told me he never, until today, he cannot sleep in a room with a ceiling fan above his head because he would immediately think about helicopters that chased him and shot him down during mm. the war. You know, and, and, and he, he told me, do you know more Vietnamese veterans killed? Um, do you know that many veterans killed themselves mm. after the war? And we were forbidden to talk about it. We mm. did not talk about the trauma of war because the official viewpoint has been we won the war. It's a, it's a heroic war. So, you know, if you... Um, one of the most famous novels about Vietnam is uh, The Sorrow of War by Bao Ning. And um, it's the first novel by a Northern Vietnamese soldier who, uh, who presented the trauma of war. But because of its name, The Sorrow of War, you know, it was censored, you know, mm. it wasn't published until many years later. And when it was published in Vietnam, they are the he was asked to change the name from the sorrow of war to the fate of love. <laughs> so, so the novel was published from Nỗi Buồn Chiến Tranh, The Sorrow of War, to Thân Phận của Tình Yêu, The Fate of Love. And only in recent years that the name was reverted into the original name. So there's so many things to unpack there. I'm still um, trying to process the image of you on the back of a motorcycle, listening to a story, how you made notes, I can't even imagine. God knows how that works. But anyway, um, there is another Vietnamese writer who helped you to get this manuscript published. Can you tell the story of how you got published? Because I can see how you had to write it in English because you couldn't have had this published in Vietnam. I know that that is coming and that you are translating it yourself. But can you just tell us the story of how the sort of Vietnamese diaspora in a way helped you get there? Um, you know, the incredible person who helped me publish this book is Viet Thanh Nguyen, uh, the author of The Sympathizer who won the Pulitzer Prize. And his second novel, the sequel that the committed is come like second of March, I'm really excited. And he just wrote me an email and invited me to join the last leg of his book tour. So this is really a great honor. But you know, the amazing thing is that Viet Thanh Nguyen's family fled Vietnam at the end of the war. So had the war continued, we could have been each other's enemy, you know, because my family is from North Vietnam. I have family members who fought for the Northern Vietnamese army we could have been enemies, you know, but I remember I had my first international publication being my pub, my poetry book published in the States. So I was invited there to do a poetry reading. And at that time I could attend the uh, AWP conference, the, writer, uh, the writer's conference, and he had a panel there. So I had read his book and I went there and after the event we exchanged and then when I told him I was a writer from Vietnam, he said, let's exchange books, you know. And then we kept in contact. And then one day I thought, what the heck, I'm just going to send him the synopsis and ask him if he could recommend an agent. And he said, I have an agent, one of the two agents who sold the sympathizer is really nice. Let me forward the synopsis to her. And he did. And, you know, and magic happened and the thing you know what why i love you know actually in australia you have a very uh well-known vietnamese american uh, vietnamese australian writer nam lay author yeah. of the boat nam, yeah so nam and i met at um at the writing um you know like um get together organized by Viet Thanh Nguyen in california 
and Nam is like really shy. <laughs> Uh, and he's like working on his next book and he's, he's just so amazing. And, and I think, you know, I really appreciate it that Vietnamese in the diaspora have been, you know, like bonding to helping each other to raise our voices because, uh, yeah, we have a Vietnamese proverb um, um, which says that uh, a, a, a tree stands alone is nothing but three trees together can form a high mountain. Mm. I knew there would be a proverb. I knew there would be a proverb. Um, Quay Mai, did your family consider leaving as so many did? You mentioned refugees before, and of course we had a major intake of Vietnamese refugees um, thanks to a very enlightened government at the time. Um, did your family think about coming to Australia? Actually, I think throughout our history, Vietnamese parents have had to make very difficult decisions. Mm -hmm. You will see in the mountain thing that the, the, the parents, the decisions they had to make, you know, I mean, thinking about the poor people who, who made it to Australia, some of them had to leave their children behind. Uh, some of them had to put different families members on different boats, mm -hmm. you know, to make sure that they stay alive. Um, I think, you know, at that time, the time when people fled Vietnam by boat, we were in Bạc Liêu. Bạc Liêu is the, the location in the, the tip of the Mekong Delta, Delta, south of Vietnam, where most boat people went. Mm -hmm. So when I went to school, occasionally some classmates would disappear from my class. And there would be rumors that said they left for the boat, you know. But at the same time, we heard horrific stories of how many people died at sea and uh, how they were robbed and mm -hmm. raped and so many horrible things. So I, I think I'm not sure my parents ever considered but they must have, they must have, but they didn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And for us... Um, for us, because the experience of moving from North to South Vietnam was very traumatic. So, so personally, I did not want to move anymore, you know, like because Vietnam was divided into North and South. So we were considered two parts of the family. So for my family to move from the North to the South of Vietnam, we were like refugees. Mm -hmm. The first things that hit us that evening when I first came to Bạc Liêu, was the rocks that exploded onto our tin roof. Neighbors had thrown rocks onto our roof because they hated northerners who had come to steal their jobs. Wow. Because the new government mm. had taken away jobs from the southern government and given it to the northerners who were the allies, you know? so. It was so many things. So I also wrote about that conflict in the mountain thing, you know, how we Vietnamese people were divided and became enemies, even though we are like brothers and sisters. There's a fairy tale in Vietnam that all Vietnamese are born to the same um, um, father and the same fairy, um, um Ochre fairy and Lạc Long Quân, the dragon king. We are children of the same family. And, and, and that's why, you know, I wanted to, that's why I use the Chan family to represent Vietnam as a country. Mm. Because, you know, I think when it comes to reconciliation, it's more difficult when it's family, you know. I think there has been tremendous progress regarding re reconciliation between Vietnamese and Americans. But when it is, you know, reconciliation within the Vietnamese community is very difficult. Um, you might have met v uh, Vietnamese Australians who have not been back to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, and the elder generation even forbid their children to return to Vietnam. Mm. That trauma is still so, so deep and so painful. And, and you know, I think I wanted to write this book to start a conversation among Vietnamese ourselves. We need that conversation yes, because, because if we don't have that conversation, our 
children and grandchildren will be inherited from by our trauma. Yes. In, in the novel, uh, which is based on many of the true stories that you gathered, you, you, your own grandmothers, for example, had both died by the time um, you wrote this book, but you've created a sort of um, maybe a composite grandmother to represent them and to tell the stories of what life was like in the 30s and 40s. Um, and this grandmother, for a period, she's very resourceful, um, but she's alienated from members of her community beca because she becomes a black market trader to keep her family fed. Can you tell us a little bit about that story, about that gran grandmother's experience? So actually, you know, the trading experience of Grandma Ziulan is inspired by the experience of our own family. So my mom worked as both a teacher and a rice farmer in Baclio, and you know, her salary was uh, so little. So to go back a little bit, I want to say that after the war, we had a subsidized economy period when the market was totally controlled by the government when and things had to be distributed by coupons and so on. And also it was during the war. So so we moved to Viet, uh, to South Vietnam after the war and the, the, whole, the whole system was still going on. So my mom, you know, tried to sell a few things in front of our house and we had, he had, uh, she faced so many troubles. So it was shocking to us and we had to quit because otherwise, you know, she would lose her job at the school. Uh, so that inspired my experience uh, in, in writing about, you know, the black market and, you know, Vietnamese are really resourceful. <laughs> if you go to Vietnam, there's a black market everywhere. <laughs> You mentioned, you mentioned before a couple of moments in history that I was very ignorant about and that I don't know how much the audience knows about, but you mentioned the great hunger and the land reform, and those are two really shocking experiences in the book, and I was wondering whether you'd like to tell us a little bit about one or the other or both, because they're really um, kind of seismic moments in, in the country's evolution. You know, um, the great hunger um, is the result of World War II. Um, mm. You know, so during that time in the in 1945, under the French and Japanese occupation of Vietnam, uh, two million Vietnamese people died, and that event is rarely uh, written about in 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 literature about Vietnamese history. So um, my own family lost three members due to the, the great hunger. Um, my father's mother together with her youngest son and her brother. And we did not um, find her grave until recently because many, too many people had died at that time in the village that there were a lack of people to bury the dead. I also wrote a poem for her about that time, but I felt the poem was too small to contain that horrific event. So I, I interviewed many people, you know, the elderly in my parents' villages. I interviewed my father. He was young at that time, but you know, the, the, the great hunger, he remembered so vividly. So, I, um, so then I documented the experiences, you know, I fictionalized the experiences um, of the land uh, of the great hunger into the mountain thing. So my uh, grandma was actually killed in a cornfield. So because her children were so hungry, she ventured into a cornfield to try to steal corn. And the, the, um, the person who guarded the cornfield tied her to the corn plants. And my father said, because his mother was so weak, she could not break away from the corn plants. So, so she died. And in writing the book, I wished such bad things to this person who had killed my grandma. So I gave he, him the name Wicked Ghost in the story. I wished so many bad things to him. But in the end, I found, I found forgiveness. Um, you know, and, and I think forgiveness is some the biggest gift we could give ourselves. And so, um, and on top of that, I also wrote about the land reform because mm -hmm. my my mother's father was killed 
because of the land reform. And you just need to Google land reform Vietnam and you see so many horrific pictures. Uh, you, you see the statistics of those who died. And this, because it involves with the mistakes uh, of, of the past. So, you know, we, we are not allowed to discuss about it openly. And recently in Vietnam, there have been excellent novels written about the land reform, but they are, you know, they can't be published. Or one of them, for example, the latest novel by Ta Zui Anh, he's like one of the novels, uh, one of the writers most censored in Vietnam. <laughs> so he wrote this novel called The Orphaned Land, Đất Mồ Côi, and you know, his novel, you know, it's so good, but no media is allowed to write about it. So I saw a picture of him signing copies of his book in his bedroom. And I, I said then I was weeping because he should be signing at bookshops, you know, because in Vietnam, the COVID situation is not bad. They still have public events, but no media is allowed to, to talk about this book at all. He could only sell it on social media. So that's, that's the situation in Vietnam. So I was compelled to write about it, to honor you know, the experiences of my family, of those who, who suffer so much loss and trauma due to these events. Maybe you can help him the way you were helped to publish your book. It would be lovely to be able to hand that help on. Yes, so actually I have told my agent about his work. So I have, <laughs> so I have brought together an American friend who's a poet and a translator of Vietnamese living in the States. So they translated Ta Zui Anh's, uh, uh, another book of Ta Zui Anh, which is banned in Vietnam, is called The Queen Termite. And it, this book is about the corruption, um, the current situation of corruption um, uh, in relation to land. Mm -hmm. you know, in Vietnam. So my agent is reading it. So she just emailed me yesterday. Actually, she wanted to ask for my, she wanted to talk to me about it. So I'm keeping my fingers That's crossed. That's great. That's great news. So given that you grew up, um, you were two, I think, when the war ended, I have to ask you about, you, you grew up under the Americans. Uh, what was your attitude to them? You know, you've talked about this kind of divide within Vietnamese society between the North and the South, but what was your attitude and your family's attitude to the Americans? Um, to answer your question, I give you an example. Uh, so when I went to the United States for the first time in 1998, um, I went to Washington DC and my husband took me to the Vietnam War a Veterans Memorial. I refused to go in. And I, I told my husband, I could not go in to honor those who contributed regardless of how small to the devastation of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And you know, and this, this was after my, my, my four years in Australia, you know, I had known Australian people, I have read widely, but still there was something in my mind. So, but after a while, my husband went out and he said, if you don't visit this memorial, you're going to regret it. So I went in. The first thing I noticed were the letters at the foot of the wall. The letters of children who had written to their dead fathers. And I, I, I read them and I was crying because I, I was brought up in Vietnam. I was brainwashed into believing that American soldiers were inhuman. They were killing machines. Mm. And because of the, the images that were built into my mind from childhood, I no, no longer saw the humanity. Uh, but these, these letters opened my eyes and I started, you know, after that trip, I started reading, uh, you know, books by American veterans and I began translating. I translated a lot of poetry. I translated the essays and one of the, the veterans whom I translated is Bruce Weigel and he's, you know, he wrote a lot about Vietnam and, and, and the atrocities that happened in Vietnam. So I translated his book um, and took him back to Vietnam and went on a book tour. And it was 
so unbelievable. You know, like, so I think literature helped to change me. And I think for my family, uh, let, let's see, my my parents escaped American bombs uh, barely. Mm-hmm. You know, they were bombed on the village road and they, and I mean, they have, they have, they know a lot of uh, distant relatives and friends who died during the war. So it's very difficult for them, but I think they separate, um, you know, um, the war f- and the politics from the American people. So I think my parents are very, you know, open-minded, very compassionate People. And they they must have been open-minded enough to give you books. I, I don't know how you would have got these, but I know that when you were growing up, you read The Little House on the Prairie, that you loved the writing of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And I was just wondering what it was about The Little House on the Prairie series that you loved and how you came to get those books. Did your parents give them to you? Um, so actually, um, the books that my parents bought brought home was those uh, fairy tales from Russia, uh, you know, um, and also the book One Thousand and One Night, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, like book from Italy, Ponichico. Uh, uh, what's the Pinocchio, name? The, Pinocchio. The, Pinocchio. Yeah, the boy with the long nose. <laughs> uh, um, so. Um, the, the book that you mentioned, actually, uh, I fictionalized it into the novel yeah. because I wanted to use, because, you know, I did not read an American story when I was growing up. That's what I, I thought. Mean, had, I, uh, had, had I read one, I would have changed my mind earlier about American veterans. <laughs> but, but actually, I had the idea of using that book from the essay of Larry Heinemann who's an American veteran and who wrote an essay and I translated into Vietnamese. And in his essay, he talked about a Vietnamese professor who spent years uh, learning English and translating American literature so that he could talk to Vietnamese soldiers so that they could see into the minds of American soldiers so they could defeat them. (laughs) So this... So this essay prompted me to use an American book in my novel. Okay. One of the things that I was really interested about um, in relation to your book was when I went to Hanoi, Kwe Mai, I was very impressed with the fact that there was a museum of women's history um, and that that museum's purpose is partly to celebrate gender equality. Um, And yet one of the the expressions, one of the proverbs that... um, is in your book is very negative about women. And it says that um, women are ignored in conversation. It says the the proverb is, or the saying is, women can't pee higher than the tips of grass blades. So I wanted to ask you about the status of women in uh, Vietnam in the time of your grandmother, in the time of the mother in this book, who is a doctor who returns very traumatized from the front, and the status of women in Vietnam today? You know, the proverb you just mentioned is still widely used in Vietnam. You know, đàn bà đái không qua ngọn cỏ. <laughs> women can't pee higher than place of grass. So uh, it's demeanful for women. And I think, you know, during my grandmother's time, they couldn't, it could not be unusual for them to be able to go to school. You know, women were supposed to give, you know, like to be, to serve mm-hmm. in the household. And now if I go to the countryside, it's very often that we have different, um, you know, if we had a party, the men would sit separately and the women would sit, you know, the men would sit higher, you know, um, and, and, and the women would be serving them. And, and traditionally, women are expected to do domestic duty. I give you an example. So my, my, I came home and my father said, your brother is like uh, crawling um, under his wife's skirt because he's doing too much around the household. <laughs> And I had to kind of have a discussion with him and said, you know, nowadays we all should 
to now divide our housework and uh, had to talk to him a long time like that. But I think Vietnam has made a lot of progress. I mean, uh, at the time of my mother, she could attend school. My parents couldn't, didn't have an opportunity to, to go to university, but they finished, you know, high school and, um, and I think, you know, uh, for, my for my mother, she was expected throughout her life to cook for my father, mm -hmm. who pretends not to cook, not to know how to cook. <laughs> yeah, we and, all know that technique. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's not just in Vietnam, No, it's right? not. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Vietnam now have some high-ranking uh, politicians uh, who made it, you know, to, to the National Assembly, to the government. And, and you know, the food, food, the women football team of Vietnam is very successful. And uh, for a while, I, you know, they were even better than the men, you know, the <laughs> men's team winning a lot of awards. So I was like, yeah. Um, but I think in Vietnam, um, because of equality reasons, I think there are a lot of expectations on women. We are expected to excel outside the household also, mm -hmm. you know? So for example, if I were, because at the moment I'm in Jakarta, it would be easier for me to stay home and write full time mm -hmm. because in Vietnam, everybody would be saying, why are you not going to an office? You know, you studied so hard. You have so many degrees. Why are you staying home? You know, um, they expect women to contribute, to excel and to, to have a proper job. I mean, in Vietnam, in some sense, being a writer is not having a proper job. Mm. Uh, so, um, yeah, so, so I think there still there are a lot of gender issues in Vietnam. There's a lot of, you know, um, things which is embedded in our culture that 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 is that looks down on women and um, expectations that we have to take care of our children we have to cook we have to do the shopping uh, and also you know um, an expectation that we have to uh, to to balance all these responsibilities with the responsibilities outside the household mm. and also being a Vietnamese, like if you are a Vietnamese daughter-in-law, <laughs> you are expected to serve the husband's family. So traditionally, Vietnamese people, we you know, generations live in a household, and the eldest uh, son is expected to to bring you know his wife and and live with the parents and take care of the parents, and that daughter-in-law has to cook for the parents, take care of them. So lots of responsibilities. Lots of responsibilities. Now, you've talked a little bit about censorship in Vietnam and about how PTSD is not properly acknowledged and trauma is not really being addressed directly. But I was just wondering about something that Huang, the young narrator in the book says, which is about the sort of broader political discourse. She says, I do know politics is as dirty as sewage. I don't ever want to set my foot near it again. And I was wondering whether you think that that is a common view amongst the younger generation in Vietnam is we, we don't want to have anything to do with that stuff. Oh, definitely. Talk about politics is dangerous. Um, you know, people now, I think because Vietnamese people have gone through a lot. So a lot of people just want to have peace and move on with their life. And I think, um, yeah. Ah, we've frozen. We've got a little freeze on here. Ah, yes, and we've lost the feed, which means that I'm going to read you the beginning of The Tallest Mountain while we sort out the glitch. So um, this is, sorry, this is the chapter called The Tallest Mountains from The Mountain Sing. My grandmother used to tell me that when our ancestors die, they don't just disappear, they continue to watch over us. And now I feel her watching me as I light a match, setting fire to three sticks of incense. On the ancestral altar, behind the wooden bell and plates of steaming food, my grandma's eyes glow as an orange-blue flame springs up, consuming the incense. I shake the incense to put out the fire. As it smolders, curtains of smoke and fragrance spiral toward heaven, calling spirits of the dead to return. 
Ba oi, I whisper, raising the incense above my head. Through the mist veiling the border between our two worlds, she smiles at me. I miss you, Grandma. A breeze gusts through the open window, holding my face like Grandma's hands once did. Wong, my beloved granddaughter. The trees outside my window rustle her words. I'm here with you, always. I set the incense into the bowl in front of Grandma's portrait. Her gentle features radiate in the incense's perfume. I stare at the scars on her neck. Remember what I said, darling? Her voice murmurs on the restless branches. The challenges faced by Vietnamese people throughout history are as tall as the tallest mountains. If you stand too close, you won't be able to see their peaks. Once you step away from the currents of life, you will have the full view. Two minutes, two more minutes. Okay, so now we're going to go on <laughs> to the next chapter. I'm going to read you the whole book, which is called Red on the White Grains and is set in Hanoi between 1972 and 1973. Grandma is holding my hand as we walk to school. The sun is a large egg yolk peeking through a row of tin-roofed houses. The sky is as blue as my mother's favorite shirt. I wonder where my mother is. Has she found my father? I clutch my jacket's collar as the wind rips through the air, swirling up a dust cloud. Grandma bends, putting her handkerchief <coughs> sorry, against my nose. My school bag dangles on her arm as she cups her palm against her face. We resume walking as soon as the dust settles. I strain my ears, but hear no bird. I search, but there isn't a single flower along our path. No grass around us, just piles of broken bricks and twisted metal. Guava, that's the nickname that the grandmother has for Huang. Guava, be careful. Grandma pulls me away from a bomb crater. She calls me by my nickname to guard me from evil spirits she believes hover above the earth, looking for beautiful children to kidnap. She said that my real name, Huang, which means fragrance, would attract them. When you come home today, you'll get your favorite food, Guava, Grandma tells me. Fur noodle soup? Happiness makes me skip a step. Yes, the bomb raids have stopped me from cooking, but it's been quiet, so let's celebrate. Before I can answer, a siren shatters our moment of peace. A female voice blares from a loudspeaker tethered to a tree. Attention, citizens, attention, citizens. American bombers are approaching Hanoi, 100 kilometers away. At Grandma cries for heaven and earth. She runs, pulling me along. Streams of people pour out of their homes like ants from broken nests. Far away from the top of the Hanoi Opera House, sirens wail. Over there, Grandma rushes towards a bomb shelter dug into the roadside. She pulls up the heavy concrete lid. No room, a voice shouts out from down below. Inside the round pit just big enough for one person, a man half kneels, half stands. Muddy water rises to his chest. Grandma hurries to close the lid. She pulls me toward another shelter. Attention, citizens, attention, citizens. American bombers are approaching Hanoi, 60 kilometers away. Armed forces get ready to fight back. The female voice has become more urgent. The sirens are deafening. We're back. <laughs> Quay Mai, it's nice Thank to have you, so you back. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Your, your reading is beautiful, Caroline. <laughs> Not thank as you. beautiful as your writing, but thank you. I can't remember where we were, but we were talking about, I think we were talking about women, but I wanted to ask you about something. Oh, we were talking about politics, and you were saying that the next generation is not interest, interested in politics, and I think that this is a worldwide phenomenon and that there's a lot of cynicism about politics. I wanted to ask you about something else in the book. There is an uncle who comes back from the war and who tells Huang about his experiences, um, uh, particularly with Agent Orange. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became aware of Agent Orange? Um, so when I lived in Hanoi, I um, started um, a charity, like a, a voluntary group to help children living with cancer 
in, you know, who were treated in hospitals in Vietnam. And uh, I volunteered with um, the Peace Village near Hanoi. And the, the center was packed with deformed children. Um, and um, one day I went, I, when I was leaving, there was a woman who pulled my arm and he said, I am a mother of one of these children. And he told, she told me, you know, her husband had died because of Agent Orange. And he, she's, she was unable to take care of their son. So she said, can you imagine the pain that I have to endure? I have to, I love my child, but I cannot take care of my child. Mm. So after that, I did research. I visited people who are living with impact of Agent Orange, and it's terrible. If you go to Vietnam, there's a museum called uh, the War Remnants Museum in Saigon, where you can see jars with babe, deformed babies, born deformed. And I grew up, um, I grew up, you know, eating fish with two heads and two tail. My, my, our neighbors were like, you know, don't eat these, you know, uh, it's, they are deformed because of Agent Orange, but you know, we had no choice. We had no food. So for a while I was thinking maybe I ate the war, mm. um, you know, maybe I was affected by it. So I was scared. So when I gave birth to my kids, I immediately, I counted their fingers and their toes. Uh, and I've heard so many horrific stories and, you know, I've met so many children impacted by it. So I felt compelled to write about it because um, recently there is, there, there is a, la a lawsuit in, in France. There's a 79 years old lady who is suing 29 chemical uh, companies who produce Agent Orange and reach so much profit and they have not done anything for the victims in Vietnam. And she said, this is her last fight. She lost her daughter because of Agent Orange and she has cancer, but this is her last fight for justice. Compensations have been given to some American veterans and Korean veterans have been compensated, you know. It is recognized that Agent Orange does terrible impact to the human genes and mm -hmm. is passed on to, from one generation to the next. And in Vietnam, so little has been done, uh, you know, victims have not been compensated. And recently I saw pictures of a clean up operation of Bien Hoa Airport in South Vietnam. And I could see an aerial view of the clean up and thousands of houses are surrounding, you know, the airport. They live in such close proximity to, to the airport. It's so dangerous. And I think in Vietnam, the problem is widespread because of the lack of, of, of clean water. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of families still rely on well water. Uh, they have no access to water mains. So, so I think because of things that of, of the polluted, of how, you know, Agent Orange seep into our ground. It polluted our water supply, our food supply. The rate of cancer is really high in Vietnam. And that, you know, you cannot believe how the rate of childhood cancer in Vietnam is really terrible. Wow, that's, that's an awful, awful story. Kwe Mai, we've got a few minutes left and I would like to ask members of the audience whether they've got a question for you. If you have got a question for Kwe Mai, you can come up to the microphone um, and ask from there. If you haven't, I'm really happy to keep going. Um, but if you'd like to make your way to the microphone, while, while you're having a think about that, I'll, um, I'll just ask you a couple more things. I wanted to ask you about a, um, a self-defense technique that you mention in the book, which you call kick poke chop, but which I understand is actually formally known as counter-strike, um, which I think you learned from someone who was a martial arts master called John Haven. I'm, I'm tempted to ask you for a demonstration, but um, maybe that's going a bit far, but can you just tell us a little bit about kick poke chop? <laughs> I love saying it. <laughs> so, um, I actually, I learned kick poke chop kick poke chop in Manila in the Philippines when I was living there. 
so you know this this class led me to the poem uh, to to the mountain scene actually because while traveling to this class I uh, you know in with a Vietnamese friend I asked him what happened during the war so he told me about the American bombings of Hanoi so his personal story you know moved me so much so that night I I wrote 2,000 words that would become the opening ah. chapter of the mountain scene. The, the chapter that you just read. So I wrote after this conversation. But there's a, there's a you know, um, actually I'm, I'm sad that my master uh, passed away, but he taught me kickbox job in Manila. But he, you know, so every weekend I would go there and learn the self-defense technique with, with my husband and... My children sometimes join us and our friends, and my and my master would tell me there are several types of students, and I belong to a type who knew what to do but who would never do it in real life. <laughs> I think there'd be a few of us like that. <laughs> yeah, I I need to tell you about the experience. I mean, um, you know, once I went to you know in Vietnam, there's the Gucci Tunnel where you can go and shoot real bullets. You know, you can hide a gun and you buy bullets and you shoot it. And I wanted to know how it feels to shoot a gun because like as a writer, I needed to know recoil and uh, the smell of, of, you know, of everything. I stood there and holding the gun and my hands was just trembling so hard. It, it trembled so hard and I could not, shoot anything I ran out and I was so scared just touching the gun I think you use the pen as a weapon more effectively than the gun I, I think that's your weapon of choice um, I know that uh, you're living in Jakarta at the moment because your husband is working in an area of Asian aid for the EU and I know that you're going on to live now in Kyrgyzstan, which is an extraordinary place. And I wouldn't fancy our chances of this kind of Zoom link to Kyrgyzstan. I have to say, I think that would be pushing it. So we're lucky to have you while you're still in Jakarta. But can you imagine, Kwe Mai, going back to live in Vietnam? And do you think that the rules and regulations that are so strict around what writers can tell about Vietnamese history will loosen with time. Is the government going to become more relaxed about this or is this silence going to last, do you believe, for your lifetime? I have seen some progress in recent years and I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for change. Actually, just today, this morning, an hour before our conversation, the president of Vietnam's Writer Association contacted me. He's also uh, the director of, of the Vietnam Writers Publishing House. And he said, I'd like to publish your book in Vietnamese. Wow. Uh, can you translate it for us? But I said, I will send you a copy. You read it first. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, outside I appear very feminine. So he expected me to be not, not so like tough in my writing, <laughs> but uh, I think I might shock him. I hope not. But, but, but I think, you know, um, yeah, I'm hoping for change. And I, there are very brave writers in Vietnam who are very vocal, who are speaking up. And I think there, there's, there must be time for us to recognize mm. the lessons we can learn from our past, you know, so uh, the past mistakes will not be repeated. Uh, but I think when it comes to power, it's tricky, right? Because, you know, with censorship, people want to be selective in what type of information that can be fed to the public. So it, so it will build a positive image of them and what they want to do. So it's always in relation to power and to greed. Um, so it will take a long time, but I am hopeful for the future of Vietnam. I've seen, you know, very, you know, the president, the new president of Vietnam's Writers Association started in Cuba. So he's, um, he's more open-minded than the last president. Oh, I just want to say thank you to the audience members. I just had a, a view of, I mean, so many of <laughs> we you. We should are wave. There. We should all wave at you. <laughs> Can you see? <laughs> I want to hug every one of you. It's such an honor to share my story. My goodness, this is so amazing. Well, thank I you. Like 
Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for your hope. Thank you for your honesty and your courage. And thank you, above all, for a beautiful book. Please join me in thanking Kwe Mai. <laughs> no, I, I cannot leave before saying, um, can you still hear me, Caroline? Yeah. Uh, how amazing your memoir is. Everyone out there, if you haven't read only, please <laughs> Stop. read it. Stop. Caroline. <laughs> I mean, you know, I admire your bravery and your courage as a memoirist because, you know, I think I actually I wrote um, uh, another book uh, closely based on my experiences growing up, but I feel it's, it would be too painful for my parents, so I decided to stop writing it. I, um, I recommend I, don't. I, really I recommend don't. My mother is not a happy woman, so... Let's just stop that there. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Thank you, Kwe Mai. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.